we're live this 2020 uh, year of the black pill I'm calling it it's year of the black pill everything like literally it's, it's not even April yet and everything everything is falling apart around me um, yeah. so yeah I guess this is the first time we've talked <clears throat> kind of at all I guess since this the whole ball got rolling on uh, coronavirus in America so uh, maybe we should just all check in you know where's everybody at how's everybody doing <sighs> you know Jake all things considered I'm doing all right. I have uh, taken this opportunity to sequester with one of my girlfriends in New Haven. Have a nice domestic lockdown. Um, not smoking as much, and it's been getting a lot of work done. And uh, you know, like Frank, you know, fortunately, no one in my life's been affected yet. Still waiting for the other shoe to drop on that one. That's the thing about it. And, um, you know, I've been kind of like dealing with all kinds of stuff in my life and trying to like, you know, put some pieces back together. And so I've been spending a lot of time indoors, spending a lot of time working from home, spending a lot of time, you know, social distancing, you might say. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I have to say you know, calamitous pandemic aside, extremely gratifying to hear from other people that that situation is frustrating. And in a strange way, it's made me feel less alone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how about you? How you doing, Grant? So six months ago, I started working at an infectious disease publication for... It's for doctors, is our audience. My life is very busy. Anyway, I got to watch this happen in slow motion, though. It was really strange. Um, I have a, an article from January 9th um, is when we last updated it, called China Investigates Pneumonia Tied to New Coronavirus. And um, it was originally titled investigates cluster of pneumonia of unknown etiology. I mean, I still have a quote in there from the Hong Kong uh, health department where they released a letter to clinicians on the matter detailing just what had been ruled out. So, you know, they were saying it's not influenza, it's not avian influenza, it's not an adenovirus, it's not SARS, it's not MERS, you know, um, just while they were kind of figuring out even that it wasn't you know, something from the past, though, honestly, very similar to Corona, uh, to SARS, COVID-1, right? Um, so something I've been noticing from the beginning of this is just that the World Health Organization is completely on, is, is so Team China about this. We'll get into that later. I guess to, to, to pivot back, though, and answer your question about uh, how personally I'm doing. Um, I'm very busy at work, but I'm I'm a little bit more efficient working from home. So I'm glad for that to an extent. I mean, I've had friends lose jobs. I've had friends like I've had family lose jobs. And so it's um, it's not something I can celebrate kind of unequivocally. But at the same time, I have had some room for personal growth in the 
just the weirdness of it too. I mean, I think sometimes we, we rise to occasions and I just hope people listening, you know, can, can uh, rise to whatever shit occasion they've been presented with because uh, that's, uh, that's what we have to do. What I, what I will say is that before this, I was mostly writing about HIV um, I was mostly writing maybe every now and then I'd write about malaria, stuff like that. But a lot of infectious diseases are really under, under-resourced. Um, there's, I mean, World Tuberculosis Day was March 24th. Um, in 2018, so let me just get the numbers on this right. In 2018, 10 million people fell ill with tuberculosis and 1.5 million people died around the world. I mean, I think that's a pretty intense number. And so it's interesting when we have to, I also wrote about, uh, I wrote about Ebola a lot in the past uh, when that was Ebola until this was pretty much the world's biggest kind of headline grabbing outbreak going on at the time. And what's, what's kind of interesting about it was that while Ebola was breaking out in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they were dealing with measles. They were dealing with malnutrition. They were dealing with all this shit. It was only when they had an infectious, contagious disease that this international response kicks into gear. And so I even had uh, the head of vaccination for Doctors Without Borders for Ebola vaccination on the show. Uh, on a podcast I did with with my job. And he said that people told him while he was in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you're not here because we're sick. You're here because we're contagious. And uh, there's something about that um, that just seems like a perennial theme in infectious diseases. Um, And so, you know, and the, the, the different things, why certain things get prioritized, why others. I'm not making this case in the sense of, ah, coronavirus is just the flu. That's not what I'm really trying to say. There's a big difference. But what the scale, the scale of the measures we're taking, you look at the level of suffering and you look at how unsustainable a lot of it is going to be for a long period of time. And then you look at how long certain things become background diseases. Like they just get considered, even if there's something we could wipe out, if we actually put in an effort, we could save so many lives, you know, trying to, trying to actually, you know, as a society, if we came together and we were prioritizing tuberculosis in some, some way, I don't know, you know, I mean, we would save a lot of lives. And so, you know, it's obviously it's understandable why this gets special attention in terms of the healthcare systems capacity in terms of ICU beds, the fact that we're woefully unprepared for an influx of people at the same time. Um, it just, I just can't help but think that I, I had a lot more to write about before, you know, even in terms of what scientific literature was coming out, because this has also shut down a lot of the journals being able to publish information about anything else. Clinical trials have to have volunteers to go on and everybody's self-quarantining. So I, I worry about other diseases too. End rant. Sorry. Very, very long. Well, the next question is, of course, Jake, how are you doing? How are you living, comrade? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. So, like, 
like the first week like, or a couple first couple weeks i started to like really pay attention to this like i was kind of like once it became clear like yeah this thing's here and it's probably gonna like pretend probably collapse like the hospital system or whatever i basically spent yeah. probably like a week on like an adrenaline high just basically like searching like you know on the internet like extremely online trying to scrounge together like whatever information i could gather around this thing i don't know i don't know if any of y'all found that relatable oh but, yeah for fucking sure because yeah. I wasn't, you know, working at a at an infectious disease magazine, so I didn't have my, you know, epidemiology up to date. So yeah, yeah watch I this saw- happen in slow motion. How? What? Actually, Jake, what time period are you talking about? What month would you say this was? Mid February. Um, well, I started, I started like paying attention probably um, a couple weeks ago, I guess. Um, I'm trying to think because, like, hang on one I second. I started so. paying attention when they shut down the NBA, basically. Like that's okay, when yeah. I really was like, "This is serious." Yeah, like la- yeah, like last I guess because last week yeah, I was working from home. Week before they closed the place I work at, and that was I guess the week before that. So probably like the week of like the eighth of March. Although I will say, I think there's a chance I already had it because you you all remember like I was coughing like up a lung. Uh, yeah, and you joked about Corona. It, it might looking back, it actually might have been Corona because like it literally, I literally had all the symptoms. Really. Yeah, no, I what, had. Um, do you fever? remember what day that was? Uh, it was yeah, it was it was mid February, I think. From the, I think it started on like the twelfth, and then I had it through like the nineteenth. So the and, first known case of coronavirus in the United States is early to mid February. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it would have been another trailblazer from Swampside in. But I li- I literally had all the symptoms. I had like dry cough, fever, um, fatigue, um, shortness of breath, like the whole <laughs> gamut. But but I don't know how I would have caught it that early. Is the thing that's that's the only thing you know. Yeah yeah because there's there was there was some shit going around. There's some shit going around already. Like like I said, um, like I told you offline. Uh, you know, one of my family members had something you know before the corona stuff became like a an american you know problem um and so yeah i don't know it could have coincided and so it was already kind of like a diseasey season anyway so but anyway so after like after like a week or two of like yeah just basically freaking out and being pissed that i didn't get on my prepper shit like i said i would last year you know like (laughs) you you have been the resident prepper i'm surprised i I know i but i haven't i haven't been doing shit like i put together like a half-ass go bag i never really got around to it i never bought the ak like i said i would you know and now i'm just like fuck i had a book on prepping in my locker at work i've been meaning to read i had it in there for like six months didn't fucking do it and this kicks off and i'm like god like son of a bitch like buy your, it's never it's never too early to buy your guns yeah it's it's true now i can't buy one now not in this market you know <laughs> like this is the worst time to buy yeah and i feel like if i went to the if i went to the police station or whatever i needed to do to initiate a permit in fucking new jersey I mean, I think they think I was trying to be involved in the corona apocalypse. I'm not sure you would get a gun permit expedited very quickly right now. Which I mean, <laughs> probably not. Honestly, but the though, probably I, really, Sorry. I really would like if the situation deteriorates enough, uh, I think Swampside would be a good kind of rallying banner for a group of like wasteland raiders 
like we could, okay. we could kind of organize if people listening to the show would be interested i mean if we wanted to yeah. form a band of sort of wasteland bandits with like cool kind of post-apocalyptic outfits and you know raid pillage that kind of thing i mean we could share guns i don't know how many listeners we still have in florida so we're introducing a new patreon tier on the 20 dollar a month um you can be part of our crew for the apocalypse How's that? see this is the thing i no, see, i didn't do my research on like local edible wildlife you know i i mean i do have apparently i do i do have a filter that like you can filter out like like uh Freshwater or whatever, like takes like the particles out. Got one of those. But I don't know if that'd be enough for all of us. Um, but yeah. So anyway, but yeah. So I'm kind of coming down off that now because I feel like I reached a point uh, where I kind of felt like I read everything there was to read for a while, and I just kind of had to put it all down before I drive myself even more insane. And so I, I guess I just kind of started picking up like reading on this again uh, before before this recording. Um, but I kind of, I kind of made my peace with how up in the air everything is right now, and how much I, I feel like I, looking at all the kind of the different things I could find, it seems like I got a clearer sense of what we don't know right now and what we do know, because there's just a lot of things that there just isn't a clear answer on right now, and nobody has an answer to. And no matter what fucking like screen cap threads you took from 4chan and somebody's like insane predictions about like, like getting reinfected into South American bats and then entering back into the population at an increased lethality rate. That's all bullshit. Like, <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of shit that we just don't know about this thing. And, uh, you know, it's weird. It's, it's, it's definitely heightening the contradictions, let's put it that way. Oh, I mean, how can you believe in, you know, meritocracy or personal responsibility when as being the guiding light of capitalism or market forces when, I mean, the state is telling us like proletarians can't labor. Like you keep, like most of most people just, you can't go to work. Um, (laughs) There's, I mean, there's, there's that essential core that can still has to work. Um, But they're trying, you know, when you're talking about shutting down the mode of production from the majority of people, well, most of what they're shutting, a lot of what they're shutting down is like it reveals a couple of things. One, how much, how much like surplus labor, or like the service economy, has really absorbed. Like that's huge. The other thing is, it's also showing like there's you know a lot of what's considered to be essential workers don't make shit, and it's like oh wait, like these people who who bag your groceries, who you shit on because you know they're a fucking loser or they're supposed to be like mentally incapacitated to be doing this kind of jobs. Those people actually like hold society together. Um, yeah. And I, I think that actually seems to be going quite a ways towards raising up like some kind of consciousness, <clears throat> some kind of like working class consciousness that maybe was just beaten out of people, you know, through decades of just kind of like uh, indignity. And, you know, because you don't work in like a fucking factory or whatever, it's like you, you're just uh, basically you're, you're a fucking loser because you do this job. You know, that's that's important. Um so the, there's definitely a lot, you know, it's also it's also exposing the even like deeper inadequacies like in the American healthcare system, like the fact that we have like zero surge capacity and all the, all that stuff's basically been hollowed out in the name of like shaving off profits to feed finance capital. That's becoming more apparent. Like there's so much there's so much that this kind of blows wide into the open. It's there's a lot to pick apart here, you know. Yeah, and there's this existing sense of cynicism about all these things yeah you know it's bad but what can you do 
and we're just sort of used to taking it on the chin and used to just like, I don't know, a sense of powerlessness about these sorts of things so that even if we criticize them, it's a Zizek thing, you know, you still behave as if these things are legitimate and it's really something else to be like, you know, sitting at home and it's an emperor's no, an emperor has no clothes situation where like, you know, we're supposed to have this like kind of, I don't know, <laughs> uh, we're supposed to have like a, you know, an anti-fragile quote unquote kind of economy, you know, capitalism is supposed to be the most resilient system, you know, um, like liberal capitalism is supposed to be the most resilient kind of society. You'd see just how much of this is ideology, like in a way that it's, it's night and day. It's being told to you by the same sources that before, you know, were propping up like, um, I don't know, just propping up the legitimacy of, of our society in, in a way that was already farcical. And here's the thing. This is the thing that seems to finally, in a way, pierce the simulation. And we end up in this, like, we end up in a surreal situation. And I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, the truth has finally been born, uh, you know, and it's the end of history because we've all seen it now. It's more along the lines of it's pretty much unimaginable in our lifetimes to see this level of government shutdown and, and social shutdown. Like, again, I started really taking this seriously when the NBA, you know, suspended the season. Um, that, you know, that capitalism has been suspended in not across the board. Um, yeah, this, this, the way class is very busy, the way class is very visible here, because like the difference between having to go to work because you're essential proletariat. I think it's Monsieur Dupont that uses that term essential proletariat. Um, you know, a notion that was very much outside of Marxian Marxist productive vogue, excuse me, something that was very much outside of Marxist vogue for a while. This idea that there are, you know, these essential proletarians, it usually gets, it's usually used in a way to denigrate service workers and reproductive laborers. But when you really look at, you know, what society actually considers essential, as you were saying, uh, Jake, you know, um, we have a renewed discussion about this because it's not just about productive versus reproductive labor. Those times are past. That's a sort of mind game to get you to stop thinking about this category. Then you also see, you know, more precarious forms of labor that have just, you know, the bottom is given out for these people living check to check. That exposes how fragile uh, the, the economy is and how much it relies on, you know, things that <laughs> just, you know, aren't, aren't going to exist forever. Um, and then, of course, you see who gets to work from home or, you know, who, you know, like me has enough security where I can try to like piece my life together. And more or less, I'm not really like living very differently before than after. Um, you know, the class is visible here in American society in a very obvious way in a way that, you know, 
it was back on the table in a discourse way with Occupy. It was a little bit more of a discussion because of what Sanders is bringing to the table in terms of the discussion in Democratic Party, whose party is this, whatever. This is a sort of moment where we really feel it as something other than just a bunch of discourse, you know, other than just changing the conversation to mention class sometimes. Well, the particular threat that like this kind of virus poses is new. And so it hasn't had time to be like assimilated into the symbolic order of like capitalist ideology. Yeah, it's traumatic. It's traumatic. And so but it also and because of that, it kind of exposes like a lot of the brutality of the capitalist system that is otherwise normalized. Right. That's why the like the deep like Boris Johnson's whole like herd immunity thing is the capitalist default. Right. It's basically just, you know, you're on your own. We can't do anything for you. It's a force of nature. Uh, and then basically just step over the bodies and carry on. Right. That's what that's what they wanted to. And I feel like on some level um, and, you know, regardless of how much of it was for show or how how effective it was, the kind of like muscular response of China specifically, but also generally like South Korea and Japan and to a certain extent Vietnam and mitigating this thing kind of put them in an awkward position. You know, I think if it wasn't for that stuff, there wouldn't be them. They're basically in this weird middle ground now where they don't want to go all the way to go to like a semi-command economy or or to go to like a war economy in order to mitigate this thing. But at the same time, I think they feel like they can't be seen doing nothing. Right. That's why you're going to get like this kind of like half ass thing that isn't really going to be totally effective either way. Right. I mean, maybe we should talk about that stimulus bill or whatever or that's a law now, I suppose. It's literally unimaginable for that to happen in the United States, uh, you know, for, for people that have lived there for, you know, for the last 30 years, you know, the, for basically our lifetimes. Like, the idea that that was going to be, I don't know, I can't think of anything that really compares. Like, it, Some it of the congressional discussion was hilarious, too. I mean, you had Mitt Rom, like just the way the ideological lines just totally frayed. So Nelson, you had all these Republicans. You had all these Republicans who were who normally they, you know, they stand by their principles or whatever. But the second a crisis rolls around they're Well, you know, it's time to put on aside our ideology and, and spend some bills. I mean, like it, mm-hmm. it was really, and, and to have, you know, Mitt Romney in, in some ways outflanking certain Democrats from the left, just being like, no, we can't means test this. We need every American to get money. Like, you know, not, not Romney specifically making that argument, but you, you had um, just some real, just, just the weird cartel party bipartisan response that you get is really interesting in terms of showing how like actually aligned they are when they all start panicking about the same thing too. Right. And it's kind of funny how this was finally the time where, at least in the Senate, Sanders actually showed some leverage. Um you know, after his campaign is basically, you know, not going to happen. Like, uh, you know, people. Yeah, people, unless unless Joe Biden just completely collapses and dies, I think that's that's kind of his last hail mary at this point. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, his last hail mary is trying to get 
you know, Joe Biden to go do spring break, basically. Like, that's basically it. But, you know, it's just interesting that, like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess all I was trying to say there is that, like, you finally saw... You finally saw, like, Sanders as, like, able to do something <laughs> with all of his compromising, with all of his, like, folding. Like, he did hold up the bill in the Senate a little bit, but it was a gamble that worked. And it, it wasn't like, like, the, the thing that I have in my head as a point of comparison is the financial stimulus is, is the stimulus during the financial crisis, the enormous bailouts. And, you know, you have the Bush administration, like giving away like ungodly sums of money to, you know, financiers and kind of playing favorites and that sort of thing. Um, in this case, there was a concerted, what really makes this unprecedented is that there was that level of urgency and you couldn't just leave out sending checks to Americans, just cutting checks to, you know, just cutting checks. Yeah. Not just for companies, for people. Well, it shows what a legitimacy crisis they're in. It's something that Americans like American politics itself could not produce for decades just comes out of the woodwork because of mm-hmm. the smallest external threat that's not even you yeah. know civilization collapsing but just something big enough of a deal that all of a sudden these new things become possible and necessary and i think too that i mean the the weird way they're trying to pretend that there's not a corporate bailout here and yet there mm-hmm. still is but com- like they didn't even like you said in in 2008 they didn't even cover it up it was just the oh, most, no, no. it was it was just the most flagrant obvious you know there's definitely a corporate slush fund in this thing too they're giving lots of give, giveaways and goodies but you know there's there's a different optics that they have to go for now and that's really interesting and especially mm-hmm. too in that um i mean for a lot of the economic stimulus stuff i feel like it's just pissing in the wind because the it i mean 2008 was a crisis in production so you could say we have to bail out the banks because capitalism needs banks right but capitalism's not allowed to run right now according to the government and so like you 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 can't just injecting money into the economy it'll it'll definitely i mean i'm glad there's enough pressure maybe or or an need to save face and look serious that they're actually going to do a little small thing, $1,200 check. I mean, that's right. not, that's not going to change anybody's life. I mean, it's, I find that they're doing it. I'm glad that we're getting something cause we didn't even get that with the, mm-hmm. with the 2008 I mean, financial crisis. Yeah. But the thing that's, insurance, that sort of thing. The thing that's like amazing is, is just that they're, they're, has to be that component at all. I mean, it's super weird the legitimacy crisis that they're having over this. Yeah. Yeah, um that was what Bernie held the bill up for. 
and this is stuff, right? Yeah, on the the you know corporate giveaway versus you know actually doing shit for. Yeah, well, and it's only going to make them look worse too that there is just all this money going to corporations that isn't going to save the economy. That's what they're still driving the economy off of a cliff. If you're going to quarantine things for another month, whatever your thought of it as an epidemiological strategy, right? I mean, like it's 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 completely there's there's no way that injecting even two trillion and doing like unlimited quantitative easing or changing the interest rate is going to make a capitalism that doesn't let most proles go to work function. You ju- that just doesn't, that doesn't fix the fundamental labor problem that you're, that you're facing. I mean, the, the, adv- the advantage is, you know, I mean, the problem is like, su- like supply, like you have to maintain supply lines. I feel like in principle, like the extremely like high nature of like, like productivity could mean you could basically take all these people who have been like um, soaked up into like service service labor and other aspects of the economy. You could be, who are basically non essential. You probably could basically just give them like some kind of generalized UBI. But the problem is you have to make sure like that supply lines continue to function, right? That you know, but to do that, to do all of that, you basically have to do like state capitalism as a bare minimum. And not only is that completely beyond the purview of any major person except for maybe Bernie Sanders or a few other people in major government, completely on their purview. Like I, I doubt like the federal government could even handle something like that at this point. You know, it's 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 completely beyond the pale. So again, like they have to like make this big show like they're doing something, but at the same time they really can't take it as far as would be really effective to contain it at this point. You know, the, the most they can really do with with these generalized like, you know, lockdowns is just try and basically hold the spread of it down just enough so that they can sue for time to get more ventilators by the back end of this year, right? Yeah. They have, they, they have to do half measures. And even then like so many of the irrationalities of the public-private like partnership system. Not only that, but God, the irrationalities of American like federalism are coming out. One of the things I found, one of the most like amazing things I learned from that monthly review article that we took a look at. Um, I don't have it on hand. What's it called? Actually, it's called. Uh, COVID-19 in Circuits of Capital. Yeah, COVID-19 in Circuits of Capital by Rob Wallace et al. Um, is that like the federal government and the state governments are like in a bidding war for more respirators. What? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's complete madness. It's, it's complete madness. It's to- like it just lays bare all of these terrible inefficiencies like and well, and some of that also comes down to just horrendous leadership you know like the, like yes i mean that that's like a, that's a huge part of it like this idea that yeah basically trump is like well go find your own fucking respirators <clears throat> like that's not a that's not an effective uh, approach no, and to yeah. like a national crisis i mean and it's the whole thing shows a tremendous like dearth of foresight because yeah by shutting down the economy and then spending trillions of dollars to like try to keep things afloat like that's actually a half measure like what you should have done was preventative medicine what you should have done is you know like establish you know response systems for these types of things first like have at least baseline universal health care if you know but something much more well-funded and much 
<clears throat> less based on like profitability kind of criteria like um and it's it's a but that's not even enough because you look at Europe and like you know some of these places have single payer healthcare and the bodies still piling in the streets like right so that's just a baseline like well yeah yeah like you like the grant yeah even Italy's like surge capacity is considerably higher than ours but the other advantage to like a universal healthcare system is that it is at least easier to tell what's going where and mm-hmm. you know yeah. basically how to like sort out the supply lines in terms of like distribution of medical equipment we have all these different private firms right yeah planning like have or having like clearer like more straightforward standards in terms of like how much extra equipment they have to have on hand and stuff like that like i got a buddy of mine i guess his dad works at a hospital he says they have like two ventilators <laughs> like it's yeah yeah there are there are counties without ventilators yeah there's like a, a many counties without ventilators like i think over 100 like that's scary. Oh yeah, you know it's it's, and I know like it's it's interesting. There's a lot of things where I've, I've seen a lot of like open source projects to try and like jerry rig ventilators at this point. Maybe something could positive come of that, but getting that stuff out there and like making that standard practice takes time. And so the most that the, like they can really even do in the United States is try and hold things down as much as they can for as long as they can. But I don't know. Looking at the numbers, it's like we're just kind of at the beginning of this here. This outlooks to me because if you look at like the for instance the death the death ratio and the hospitalization like there's a ton of people who have been diagnosed but I think you know you're gonna see the death rate climb as time goes by and we're not even close to the crest of this thing. We're we're still in the exponential stage of you know existing cases to new cases basically, and it's only when the government or you know whatever response force but in our lives <laughs> in our world it's the government, um, you know can like mobilize a uh, response and get things to like, like, I don't know. Like it's only when there's like a certain course of action taken that you see that first exponential thing start dropping. Um, and you can start to see it's, 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 it's helpful to look at it this way because you can start to see like, you know, just when exactly uh, things start to work, you know, like, you can start piecing together which policies, you know, led to this, like, lead, lead to a better outcome. Well, and, I actually think you look around the world at, at, at the different policies and the different countries that, you know, worked out and didn't work out in Asia, for example. And I just find it utterly more confusing when you look at, you know, places like, so you have what happened in China, which I think was kind of a shit show. I, I, yeah. I consider stuff like the quarantine a sign that it was out of control, not a sign that things were coming into control. But you look at South Korea, they, I mean, they did targeted mass testing, stuff like that. And S- Singapore has temperature checks at public places, but they've kept schools open, stuff like that. And so there's mm-hmm. been different ways even states have had responses to this where because they have different health capacities and different approaches to public health than the United States, for example, um, and because of mass testing, they were able to respond in a much more targeted way than shutting everything down immediately. Well, yeah, I mean, doing nothing. Those being our kind of only options in the American. Right. 
what's well it seems like testing is huge like that's one thing everyone agrees on uh like south korea like the insane level of testing they did combined with a little bit of state surveillance stuff to basically almost like detectives like track down who had it and like do targeted quarantining that seemed to be probably so far like the most effective mass strategy but one thing i saw somebody point out and i haven't looked at all the data on this but i i would wager that it's probably true like those areas of Southeast Asia, one thing they all have in common is that they've all lived through SARS, and there's a recent history of having to deal with stuff like this. And I remember somebody pointed out, like, theater att- movie theater attendants in China, like, leading up to, like, Lunar New Year. Like, when, when there were rumors of this thing circulating about, it dropped significantly. Now, it always drops around that time, but this, like, it dropped, like, an extra level. And I would guess that for the populations there, it was much easier for them to, even without, like, the state crackdowns and so forth to take this thing this thing seriously in a way that like western societies didn't um both in terms of having yeah that living social memory of responding to like a pandemic like this but also probably just you know um particularly in places like vietnam just like a maybe a social memory of like some kind of like collective struggle or maybe like you know maybe slightly different values than like the neoliberal individualism that's been cultivated like in the capitalist west for the last 50 fucking years. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let's think about, you know, those countries that had, that have had responses that when you're looking at it from, you know, existing cases to new cases that have been able to curb the exponential growth, right? Like, cause when you see that line drop off, when you see it cease to do exponential growth, <clears throat> that's when, you know, your policies have been effective. Grant is right that it's sometimes difficult to pick out, you know, which policies are effective here. But all you can say is that there's been, you know, some curbing of that, like new cases. Okay. And so we have China, which, okay, again, you know, Leninist state. Um, there's um, Singapore, which, uh, you know, not Marxism, Leninism, but you know, like the People's Action Party, the main party in Singapore you know, organizes on Leninist principles. Um, and there's, you know, sort of a tolerance for state intervention in life there. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't they, like, cane you there for spitting gum out? Yeah, it's, it's pretty authoritarian. Um, yeah, so I can't imagine. I, like, mm-hmm. you cover your mouth and you're in that fucking country. I'll tell you right, that right now. Right, yeah. And then you have South Korea, which maybe is more of the outlier because it's, you know, you would you would think it's more of an outlier, but it also had like a military dictatorship in the seventies, and um, being close to North Korea means you know for propaganda reasons and you know like like keeping living standings excuse me keeping living standards up and um, you know being like good at healthcare is important <laughs> like it's not just for propaganda reasons but like it's especially how do I put this. There's there's a similar effect that, you know, being on the border of the Soviet Union had during the Cold War, where you wanted to, you know, look good on those basic human figures um, compared to your neighbor that you're in tension with. South Korea has that kind of stamped in. So you have these three countries that are able to do shit. <laughs> they're, they're able to mobilize in, in a in a way like I think in China, like we could talk about the Chinese response a bit because at first I think it's very clear that the kind of tamping down that they were attempting, uh, revealed their impotence, you know, that they like 
were doing these massive overreaches that didn't actually didn't actually like you know flatten the curve you might say um but over time they clearly did figure it out like well Well, i guess what's clear to me though is that whatever policies different governments take around the world at the end of this they're just going to point to that they're just going to point to that moment that the exponential growth stops and say look we did it i mean that's kind of what i would respond to the idea that that's necessarily going to be the most useful way of identifying policies, because I think that there's going to be a huge political interest in declaring that something they did worked, even if a lot of this stuff turns out to have been for show. Um, I, 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 in well, I mean, the, it, it, it kind of did work, though. I mean, like lying. It's not serious as a virus, but for show in the sense that they thought they could stop it from running its course through the population through X, Y, and Z, and it didn't. Well, it seems like they did stop it, though, in China. I mean, I don't, like people say, they, people say they're lying about the numbers. But. On, I think there's an underreporting of new cases. But sure, I, I think once once people really mobilized, um, F, yeah, I mean, it seems like they have tampered it down. But the thing is, if they get another wave of infection, they're not going to admit that something was wrong. They're going to say it was people from outside re-importing it or whatever. But the, I guess the thing is, I mean, that might be true right. though. Uh, well, more importantly, like they're probably going to try to do that information suppression thing that they did in the beginning and shoot themselves in the foot there. And well, then that's actually have- one interesting commonality because basically G Boris Johnson, Trump, all of them, their number yes. one thing that terrified them was they were afraid of the markets. They didn't want to spook the markets. And to varying degrees, they all kind of fucked themselves with like their early response, right? You know, it seems like it seems like China just just through again, I think probably some aspect of just the population being experienced to taking this sort of thing seriously probably did have an impact that we won't know until later. That's pure conjecture. That's mostly conjecture on my part, but I think there's something to it. Um, but the, but also, yeah, just basically taking a hammer to it probably seemed to have been fairly effective. Because didn't they put like, like how many people on lockdown did they put down on like the first 200 cases? Like imagine if we did that here. Like I, I have trouble imagining that not well, being it's, effective. It's, it's not really, but it's not really clear that those, the early response, the early and like the early extreme response was that effective. It's like once they started figuring out, I don't even know if they ever figured out like what works or doesn't work, but like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, there's a fog here to all of this for sure. But there, there was, there was a period where they were doing these extreme lockdowns and the exponential growth rate didn't stop. And grant, you know, there might be better ways to pick apart which policy did what than that. But I'm just using that as a heuristic because, you know, just based on my, you know, three in the morning high Googling, you know, like if, if, you know, if there's a better way of looking at this, because yeah, there's like, there's the obvious thing that people are worried about and justly worried about. Um, I think this is in like a Daily Mail article you sent me, Grant, um, you sent us, (laughs) but is that like people are going to point to these like big heavy handed crackdowns as the thing to do and like kind of short circuit thinking about, you know, which policy does what and, you know, which, which executive move, you know, actually helped versus what was just for show. Um, like uh, for instance, in Merkel's Germany, banning gatherings of two people, is that, 
you know, is that an effective policy? Right? I'd even enforce that. I mean, I, I, I don't think you can. Like, I, well, I'm, I bring it up because it seems like an obvious case of something that is overreach and unlikely to be effective. Well, I just think too, we just have to be, we have to be very, um, like careful about liberties at this, at this point, just because it is something that I could see them trying to use almost like a new nine 11 to oh. shore up support for the political state. A hundred percent. Like the, the, they do that with everything. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like that's that's yeah, any any and that's yeah. when, you know, when that's you're the, a hammer, that, every problem's a nail. Well, and that's just the tragedy of being a communist and a leftist uh, and a millennial at the same time, because you get to basically <laughs> watch like capitalism undergo like all these series of crises and just like the proletariat is not politically strong enough to capitalize that in any meaningful way. What ha- I mean, there you know, there are usually these kind of sporadic efforts to do something. It usually crashes up against the rocks. Um, there definitely seems to be like a maybe a sh- slight shift in consciousness to a certain extent, but it's all ephemeral and just seems to, you know, you're basically just watching the system, you know, implode in slow motion, you know? Yeah, and then who steps into the void? It's the capitalist state. They get to call right. the shots. They get to, you know, pat themselves on the back for, you know, an inept half response. Um, I, I don't know, like in Spain, according to the Monthly Review article, they've renationalized hospitals in response to this. Like, can you imagine being like someone in Spain trying to get like, you know, nationalized hospitals for you know decades or something and then you know some virus comes along and does it a and then b like however critical one might be of like you know statification tendencies in bourgeois capitalism and you know question whether that's like you know conducive to marxian or marxist sort of like views on on you know economic organization before the rev or whatever like um you know, it does seem to just be necessary to get the job done. Like, there's there's an old argument that there's an old argument that I, I used to like not really take very seriously because you know, since when are a bunch of like commies going to give like you know big capitalist advice on how to keep capitalism together? But um, you know, like ultimately it's going to prove to be less expensive to have like some kind of mobilization just bottom line. Like even if you don't care about people's lives, like it's going to be less expensive. We could have spent billions on this instead of trillions and had a more effective response. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is too, it's like, it's tough to say like, yeah, maybe the lockdowns would do more economic damage than not. But it's like, if you, if, if one of like the pillars of civil society, like basically falls apart and people can't go to the doctor or hospital or anything like that's going to have economic ramifications too. And, you know, it seems like, it seems like they're basically going to have to call in the national guard at some point, one way or another, you know, if this thing, unless of course, you know, maybe all the prognostications on it were all overblown and it really, and Trump was right. And it really is just the flu, (laughs) but, but you know, if, if, if the hospitalization rates on this hold and if it isn't the case that everybody's actually secretly had it already and it's going to be fine, like it's, 
the, there's going to be like economic fallout because you know this whole thing with the whole thing was a house of cards before that we, we were due for uh it was the end of the cycle anyway so you know this kind of came it's it this situation really is the perfect storm in so many respects like the only thing optimistic that i kind of even take up take out is that it's not worse you know because like good old good old our 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 special guy mike davis you know, in 2003, wrote a book on the fucking bird flu, which I kind of want to read now. Um, and he actually had a couple of pretty good articles uh, on the subject recently. And, uh, yeah, this whole situation could have been much worse. And at least this could almost maybe potentially be like a dry run that could maybe prepare, help us to understand, like, the need for preparation for something like this on a much higher level. And even preventative measures. I mean, I, I don't think factory farming is going anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. But at the very least, maybe they can do something about like these insane wet markets. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point too, because the what I was saying earlier about the way the World Health Organization has has really taken China's side on this, I would say you look at the naming of this thing. So WHO came up with COVID nineteen. Whereas an international virus naming group came up with SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-2, basically, as the name for the virus itself, whereas COVID-19... Electric Boogaloo. And so it's it's sort of, well, if you call it SARS-2, then you're pretty much acknowledging that China had SARS happen and then continued to precipitate the conditions where deadly human pathogens would transfer zoonotically from wild animals to human Mm -hmm. beings for longer than a decade. They just kept going with it. And so that's a huge, I mean, this is a huge fuck up that, um, that the, uh, that the Chinese government has really inflicted Mm -hmm. on the world because it's their own, marketization policies too that actually led to the wet markets it's so yeah. fun way yeah mao, way mao would never let this shit some, happen bro it, it's <laughs> well it's treated as some orientalist argument if you say anything about the the animal trade there but it's it's not some ancient chinese cultural tradition this is fucking decades ago they they made the conditions for these things to start popping up and now they're i mean there's there's rules to outlaw it but there are all these exceptions for you know chinese medicine that kind of thing and somebody was saying to me i mean you know if you skin a pangolin for some scales for some chinese medicine thing uh you're and you're involved in the exotic animal trade uh you're gonna sell the body i mean you're gonna sell it for meat you know what I mean? So it's just it, there's just these all these loopholes in the way they're trying to crack down on it still, and they let it exist for so long. I mean, yeah. But the thing is, too, you can't just ban it either, right? Or that there's questions about outright banning it because it creates a, a black market, as as people know. But then, so that's not the only question. It's okay. So it creates a black market that pushes it out to rural communities instead of being in the urban centers like Wuhan. Now, is that better or worse for outbreak control in that situation? Because now you've got people from all different places going to a central location and then going back to their different parts of the country instead of an urban center with an outbreak. So the Chinese, so they've really got this problem on their hands that it could create pathogens again, 
they've done they've let this has happened to the world once now again or twice we should say um but once on this scale and so like it's sort of you wonder what they're going to do with it because it's it's not something they've actually culturally in some way it's not something they've been able to stamp out and i'm sure they've been thinking about it since sars so it's yeah. a really mm-hmm. interesting revelation about the chinese state yeah well it's interesting yeah, the mon- dude, how much monthly, monthly review it. article it's interesting how much that like cuts against like the image of like china as like 1984 land that like so many people like try and put forward you know uh, like in the in the united states particularly oh yeah um it's like if, if it's like this like in perfect per- yeah, if yeah, it's like this perfect like totalitarian state where it's like well why can't they stop people from like selling gators and raccoons next to each other for meat you know what i mean like i think the question that we should be asking and and the question that people i think the question that we should be asking and the question that was put forward in the monthly review article is you know why did china ever allow this to happen to begin with imagine the situation that you're living in if this you're this is the degrade meat that you're going to be eating and uh schwang's article social contagion was pretty good about just historicizing you know weird food like habits like this and um and the sort of pathogens that they and the pathogens that come out of it you know it comes from being in a particular stage of production, more or less, you know, to put some teleology in their mouth. And that, you know, when the United States had similar manufacturing conditions and when uh, Britain had similar manufacturing conditions, you got similar kinds of diseases that popped up in those places, similar kinds of pandemics. Like, that's the way to deorientalize it. There's pretty nasty diseases like in deer that are going around right now that, you know, if it, if it made the leap to human beings uh, would be really deadly. And there's still a lot of people in this country who get their food from fucking deer. So, yeah. so. In agricultural right. practices in general, I mean, just pumping them full of antibiotics, that's not specific to China either. I mean, I, no, no, not at all. It happens there, too. But if you look at just the West as well, the way agriculture is done internationally, um, no matter what state we're talking about is totally just incubating this problem to be even worse. I remember I remember seeing like this like a PDF of like the Mike Davis book and like it looks like some crank shit cuz it's like it's like a picture of like a chicken and then just like really like it almost it almost looks like a fucking um RCP like Bob Avakian pamphlet like the graphic design on it. I was like mm, this seems a little crank but uh no it turns out uh, Mike Davis way ahead of the ball. <laughs> way ahead of the ball as always. He's he's really got his finger on the pulse like this in this time frame. I'll tell you what, I don't want to contradict. This doesn't actually contradict the point you made about 1984. But that I was directed at you, by the way. I didn't I didn't think so. I just this doesn't contradict that. But it it's sort of what you um what you said made me think actually about a weird complexity of the novel because I I hadn't been thinking about this before, but they actually do have sections of the proletariat that they just let have mm-hmm. market relations. Yeah in the yeah. in the um 1984 so it 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 it's because it's a critique of stalinism in some ways it gets you know bandied about by people who would like to simplify it as like just a simple like here's what totalitarian communism looks like thing i mean i i do think that it it it's interesting how um 
a lot of that hierarchy and order kind of exists for the middle and upper class. And they kind of, in the 1984, mm-hmm. there's a lot of the proletariat is just kind of left to, you know, markets of yeah, a, a somewhat post-apocalyptic kind, but markets that they, you know, and they have a pretty free society relatively, though if you kind of start speaking up, you get taken out of commission. And I mean, in China, you know, if you start speaking up, you get taken out of commission. But I mean, there's a little more workers organizing in, in certain areas where you can leverage that. But yeah, they're abandoned, more or less. You know, the proles in 1984, you know, they're, uh, they're marginal, their lives just don't really matter. And when you're looking at China birthing this and the kind of crazy ass, you know, like if this, the monthly review article goes into this, just the spectacle of having these like wild, of all this wild meat being sold, not in like a back alley, but just, you know, next to the other meat, you know, <laughs> like this isn't like. Some guy opens up a trench coat and there's a bunch of like wild right. game, like inside yeah, the jacket. Yeah. Like a, there's a bunch of bat meat in a coat. Yeah, no, I, I do think that, you know, markets and totalitarianism can work together. That's what makes like, you know, that's what makes the world so weird and confusing. <laughs> like, you know, markets don't mean a fr- like a free society. Of course not. And the, <laughs> the average that we get out of this is, is kind of frightening. You know, we again have the only two dance partners possible, capital and state. And capital's taking the hit this time, but state's getting the big boost. Um, but, you know, and it's, it's kind of obvious how capitalism generates these sorts of things. I mean, you know, to the extent that we're talking about it, maybe not obvious, but like, you know, we, we can expect if there is, like, Grant, the picture that you painted was perfectly bleak. Without eliminating markets in China, who would be dumb enough to try to do that? Um, you know, you, you can't eliminate the threat of this coming back. Well, also, I, I mean, what you said, too, about um, – sorry, that the whole thing that this is for capitalism oh, – that reminded me of something. Oh, the class state, right? You were saying that um, – you know, it. You've got these two forces that can basically act in this scenario. You've got, you know, the market, or you've got a, you know, the political state, right? You've got the the government, and so I mean, this kind of really also invalidates the idea that money in politics is the problem, or corporate, you know, the or the senators just go back to their corporate masters kind of right, right. You know, Democrat talk where they. They don't talk about capitalism, but they just talk about money in politics and money is corrupting politics and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, politics was completely willing to override the market when it thought for general social stability it needed to. And, and you know, in a crisis of legitimacy between the international political classes, they, they you know, they totally had a... a <laughs> huge immune response to this thing and decided to like shut the mode of fucking production down. So 
there's there's obviously the class state is a much more complex thing than the capitalists simply dictating what you know every single thing that goes on while it is still a class state one thing that does kind of concern me though about like the whole china thing is like you know that's going to be the pivot when this thing really goes like tits up in the united states right like it's going to shift from it's not that big a deal to uh it's china's fault to china did this to us somehow you know i feel like that's going to be the next that's going to be like the next russia gate to basically to to basically to basically square the circle of how could china contain this thing but it's ravaging our population i think that, you know trump is probably going to like low key imply that this is some kind of bioweapon cooked up to basically like attack america and like the so the right wing media is going to like run with that that's disturbingly plausible i didn't didn't look at the cards that you know wasn't staring into this crystal ball was juggling a bunch of them but holy shit that's uh that's entirely likely. I, I've seen like anti-Chinese graffiti about it already. Well, I, I feel like I've heard I've heard people like even like saying like kind of get like sussing this out already, you know, like in terms of like this is what they think. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of like I know there was like a lot of hay made about like the Tim calling it a Chinese virus and from kind of like a, almost like a PC standpoint where it's like, you know, like you can't say that Chinese people are getting hurt by this, which is true. But I think it might actually represent like an even like deeper pivot in terms of how they're going to how they're basically going to like prop up sort of like American like, you know, cons- yeah. like liberal conservative ideology vis-a-vis the markets. The idea and, logic. Uh, yeah. I mean, China did fucking drop the ball as a government in many ways, so I would be taking snipes at them too if I was the fucking U.S. government. It's certainly incentivized. I mean, it, the thing is, they're they're all trying to they're all going to try and leverage this against each other. I mean, China China virus is it it ends up being a stigmatizing thing to call it, and um, I think it's it's actually interesting how little attention I think they're actually have been some often when the left gets hysterical about there's going to be some wave of you know xenophobia like sometimes it really doesn't come to fruition but there actually have been attacks on asian americans over this and so and weirdly you don't hear a lot about it but um yeah what's interesting is trump didn't say china virus until some weirdo chinese official probably not on the communist party's bidding really but said something like oh, maybe the CIA made this thing. And so then Trump was like, all right, we're turning this into like, no, it's the China virus now. Fuck you. Um, and, and and then obviously, I mean, there is a dog whistle element of it, right? Because, you mm-hmm. know, that it, but that's more along the lines of, if you know, if you say something like that, it's going to get 24 seven coverage, not necessarily, you know, a call for, you know, the mass pogroming of Asians in the United States or something, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, <sighs> death of the author grant <laughs> death of the author yeah i mean uh, yeah all i'm saying is like if, if this thing really runs wild here and it doesn't in china like they're gonna have to square that circle somehow yeah that's you a know. good way to resolve that's a good way to resolve the cognitive dissonance you know like, like i mean and, and honestly the russiagate thing like for as far as democrats go it kind of worked for what it was supposed to do you know, it, it basically it was very effective at like kind of trammeling like any kind of like self reflection amongst like the Democratic Party itself. 
you know like i don't think we'd have joe biden if like russiagate hadn't been well, like the huge thing okay. internally it was. i suppose but like out god it, outside but they don't want to win they don't want to win right but they I, I'm, should. I'm, 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 fir- I'm firmly convinced of that you know like i, I don't it's, think they know that i mean they're actors that behave they behave as if they don't want to win but consciously they believe they want to win they like they actually are the party that like uh Baudrillard describes in the divine left. Yes. It's a little preview for next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I really think that I really think that the Democrats like they're getting what they deserve with Joe Biden after all this time of not reflecting on 2016 trying to relitigate it, all of the resistance stuff. Of you know, it just goes to show what a fucking dead end past 4 <laughs> years of anti yeah have fucking been that there it lands on who, who's who's going to be put up against him joe biden i mean and where is he what where is where well, is joe biden's leadership the, he's gone back into the walt disney cryogenic chamber that his campaign keeps him in to keep him from talking to voters and calling them 1930s slurs it's like it's like you had like Rick from Rick and Morty and asked him to like make the perfect like democratic presidential candidate and then something went wrong in the lab. <laughs> and then Joe Biden's kind of what's like saunter the mutant that kind of saunters out. It's incredible. But they did this thinking this was going to be the bit like they got here because every step of the way they've done what they think would f- would finally get Trump. Yeah. In- impeachment we're we've all forgotten about impeachment now because real history What's that? What? Real history is happening, but, but you know, it's amazing when you ask people about you know the president being impeached a few months ago. A lot of people, working people, really would not. They'd be like, "Huh?" Like, I mean, they'd know, they'd have heard of it, but like, they'd just be like, "Oh yeah, Democrats still trying to do that." You know, whereas when Bill Clinton was getting impeached, it was like, "Holy shit, the president got a blowjob!" Like, yeah, yeah, that was out. That had social roots, or it had social like resonance, I should say. Yeah, it had it had a connection with like a. It was even connected to the way people were attached to politics in the nineties, you know, by Clinton because. Um, he was a kind of transitional figure for the Democratic Party. He was a realignment type of figure, and, and so people were fixated on him. And and so you, you you it mattered. Whereas with Trump, it was so clearly just them. I don't know. They just every step of the way, they think they're doing this thing that's going to be this big gotcha, but it it makes them look worse every time. Yeah, they couldn't have like if I. That's why I'm saying they are deal? fucking it up. Our that's when you want to get him on the Ukrainian arms deal. That's when you're. That's when you're going to make your play. I mean, I, you wonder what made because Pelosi's not an idiot. I mean, she's a, a snake, but she's one of the smarter politicians who's left out there. I mean, even you know when when Pelosi would say stuff that was nice to Bernie, that's what made me think. Wait, actually, Pelosi's pretty smart, right? Because when you know when, mm-hmm. when they call when they do the RussiaGate shit, that's what was really propelling Bernie for a while too. I mean, some of the craziness towards him, it was only when Pelosi would say stuff like, you know, I'll work with Sanders if he's the nominee, like that kind of thing, or he's welcome to be the nominee. That's when I thought, that's a shrewd thing to do actually in this scenario. Um, And so I, I don't know. I mean, how they, how they pressured Pelosi into pulling the trigger on impeachment for fucking Ukraine, which drags Biden into the whole problem in this, like now yeah, that was, that was not smart. The entire impeachment conversation is about, is about something that Joe Biden is wrapped up in. 
So that is completely negated as a campaign issue or might even help Trump. It, I mean, it, it's completely so damning. I mean, they've really fucked themselves with the, the way they've done this. And then on top of that, you, you know, Ukrainian arms deal. Nobody in the United States is like thinking that their their health and safety actually depends on uh, the success of a Ukrainian arms deal against Russia. I mean, you know, it's amazing that it's convinced a small sliver, a small sliver of liberals that that's the case. I mean, because most people just find it absurd on its face. I mean, th- this connects to like another problem with this whole thing is that like there is a an historically low tr- level of trust in institutions. Kind of at, at the same time, you need everyone to kind of pull in the same direction. <laughs> um, that's why I mean, I had a lot of fun. I think like everyone else did, like trashing the Spring Breakers, especially as a Floridian, like watching these people like bring this virus, you know into like where i live and those people are just like annoying and trash anyway but at the same time it's like it's understandable why people who are just kind of checked out and tend to be for good reasons mistrustful of the media and you know governmental institutions why they would just kind of brush it off and say especially when they're again there is no like living social memory of a virus or a threat a biological threat of this scale against you know an american population so I understand like why you know people still went to the bar, even if there definitely was a component of people who did understand what they were doing and were just selfish. Uh, oh, I mean, and, and when, when you don't know anybody who has it and there's no real personal connection, I mean, you know, once it gets to the point that people are staying home from the that, – that everybody is staying home from the beach and everybody is staying home from the bars, that's how you know you've been hit pretty bad already. You know, like you're always going to have a few people who go and do things. And, you know, what I found really ridiculous was the um, I think it was an Australian or a UK police drone that was filming people who were taking their dogs out on walks. And it's just this police drone filming people who are six feet apart, who now they're telling you it's eight feet, who are six feet apart, and they're putting them on this drone camera and the police are talking about how awful they are and they're irresponsible and all this. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, if they start, if the way they enforce these quarantines is that they're going to arrest, you know, grandpa for playing dominoes on the sidewalk or, or they're going to fucking, you know, uh, stop people from taking their morning jogs that have nothing to do with the transmission of this virus. uh, I mean, that's going to get some pushback. I mean, I guess it depends because I know there's there's a particular problem in cities where like everybody goes out on the sidewalk and then you just got the same fucking problem, you know. It, it's really going to like vary based upon locality. Right. Seen, We're I've talking seen, like, about in the why in in a park. Right. You, know, you had police filming people in a park, and you shamed, and they put it on the internet to shame these people as irresponsible, antisocial actors or whatever, and that you know that's how they tried to frame it. And it's really, I don't think, I don't think you know people who are outside right now are are necessarily bad people i mean that's a really that's a you you don't know their motives their lives their, i mean, I, I mean it depends a lot today you know i mean no, no i mean yeah like i like, like i live in a very suburban area so i can like i had i have been i can go for a jog and maybe like see two people on the sidewalk on like a five mile jog you know like that's it so, but there are, I know there's definitely been like problems in places like New York where it's like, there's a bunch of people going to the park, you know, and they all go to the park and then it's basically not working, you know, um, which yeah, is, it's, no, it's, the footage I was looking at was people who were apart and there was just a few of them and it was just trying to trash them. Basically. Right. 
yeah, that tendency is definitely there. And look, I was at the Best Buy the other day because my, you know, laptop cable gave out finally. And, you know, there was this like, uh, I don't know, I, I wanted to talk to a customer service representative and they were talking to some lady and this lady was like, uh, oh, I'm doing social distancing right now. Could you like, you know, back off of me? Like, you know, get, let's get, get six feet of distance. And I wasn't even, I wasn't that close to her, but I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. And then she proceeded to just like, you know, the best, the best buy person was showing her some items and she just proceeds to lean, like kissing distance to the, into the best buy person <laughs> to like, you know, nice. cause you know, best buy person isn't people. And also like the desire to control shit is there first. And then you get these great so, justifications. Yeah. So like we shouldn't respond to this whole thing the way that some people are bound to do as, oh, you know, this is just part of Agenda 31, you know, part of establishing yeah, the world some, government. Like, some woke posting like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's inevitable. In the video game XCOM that I, I, I like so much where there's an alien invasion um, and there's a international coordinated effort to stop it. Um, in, there's an expansion pack where you run into a... <laughs> a militia group that is so opposed to the one world government that they start helping the aliens. Um, <laughs> like there's always going to be people that just can't deal with the fact that there are these big, you know, Hobbesian threats that basically form the justification for the state in class society. Like, cause that's the only way that these things are going to get done. Like, and um yeah like 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 jeremy corbyn said i don't want to live in a society <laughs> so like it's it's important for us to not like you know get lost in that and then equally you know when when you are going to see some of the most like absurd overreach and like tight butthole like you know regulation brain that wants to just like you know put everybody in like a little cube and keep them there. Um, you know, there, there's going, there's going to be some crazy overreach. Like we have laboratories of democracy or whatever in the United States. We're probably going to see a really varied response across the country from different territories, different states, um, for, you know, whether they do too little or do too much. But this is one of those events that really gives a lie to the conversation. Just, about authoritarianism and libertarianism, you know, because um, I, there's a role for, you know, actors here in keeping the worst from happening. And that's not going to involve maximum individual autonomy right now. And where we end up, the right place to be is you know, not going to be decidable by just sticking to one of your principles and turning it up to max. Do you think though, I'm curious because something you said got me thinking how, what is the capitalist civil social like responsible response to this? What, what would they have, you know, because you said they, there's 
only government is going to take care of this. But in a sense, so what what would a what is the what is the market do? You know, like what because they were really looking to Trump for optimism for a while when he was talking about um, keeping the economy open and things like that. Um, but you you would have reached you would reach a certain point where um, capitalist civil society would have to respond in some way if this is serious as serious a virus as people are saying. Uh, and so I'm I'm curious what that would have even looked like. You know, like what what a laissez faire approaches i mean we've had something like one in the united states to some extent i i I think if it was up to like the like the finance sector and like yeah capitalists as a whole i think it would just be keep on keep calm carry on uh step over the bodies and get get your ass back to work i think that would be let let this thing run through the population that kind of yeah there there is there is that soft social darwinist element um, that I think is going to be at play in a lot of the American states, probably a lot of the periphery and red states, um, the people that tend to, you know, suffer without intervention. Um, but I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly, but you could do worse than, uh, you know, Sanders like emergency program. Like, I can say a lot of negative things about Sanders at this point after Super Tuesday and the capitulation and the likelihood is he's, you know, not going to run as a third party, blah, blah, blah. All that shit barely matters now. Um, You know, him being a prominent socialist and putting forward something that isn't just like this, I don't know, cut people a check and like, you know, give big bailouts and, uh, you know, we're going to make you go back to work by Easter or whatever. Sanders is putting forward a program, you know, we have an old fashioned programmatist kind of deal here. Um, he wants to, I don't know. It's, it's, it's worth reading. Like it's, it's, you know, of course, if you're listening to a fucking Marxist podcast, it's going to seem inadequate, but, um, you know, he's making the case for, you know, positive government intervention. And like, there is, you know, there is something to be said for that. Like, there's a lot of people that are trained to like help with these things that are out of work. Um, you know, there are people that could probably be retrained. Um, there's going to be, there's yeah. going to be a lot, like we need to pre- be pressuring companies to fucking, you know, make respirators <laughs> like as as this was this sort of a war economy you know like um there's yeah. there's a lot of things that we could be doing it's a failure of imagination that we don't have more socialists being programmatists at this moment i mean i like yeah i mean trump i think did didn't vote like what was it the defense whatever the oh, act yeah. basically allows you to come at like yeah, actually after it was funny like after like screaming at like general motors and ford to make respirators and they weren't doing it like he just finally like he was just screaming at them on twitter like that was gonna be enough and then he's like i just fine okay i'll just make you do it yeah um, right and there's issues there's issues with that too because there's like a you know i mean i know they took down like the fda uh typical like regulations and stuff that are in place that would have made it take like nine or ten months to get respirators out mm-hmm. so now they're just fast tracking these things um i haven't seen the numbers on how many they can get out how fast but it's probably not going to be enough uh, but what i was going to say was like the i think the best the best end scenario of this or the best thing that i can come out of this vis-a-vis class struggle is that 
you know, the essential workers like discover their own essentialness. Yeah. yeah. And leverage that to the maximum possible to like capacity. I know, I guess, like there's a plan. I think it starts tomorrow. Instacart workers like are planning to get to like a nationwide strike. We'll see if anything comes of that. Um, mm. Yeah, and I think just yeah, or and also I think maybe maybe we can see like some kind of like renter based organization. I mean, there's gonna people are gonna be forced to not pay rent in a lot of cases, and yeah, maybe some kind of lines of solid like social solidarity can be opened up on that front. That actually seems um, plausible for once in this whole kind of like I don't know the Marxists like center the people that made the sen- people that made the most sense were like yeah I don't know if we're gonna do electoralism maybe we could try to do you know rent strike stuff and a lot of times I would look at that and say that's well intentioned I wish them well but I would never really say to myself sounds like that's gonna work well here's a situation where yeah landlords are actually vulnerable you know, there's a basis for solidarity that's appeared, kind of dumped into your lap. Like, well, because it's people who aren't Marxist center giving a shit about. Yes. The idea. Yeah, exactly. It, it's not. Uh, this is exactly the you know the causal role of you know whatever like political social agents like Marxists or whatever if they they want to be organizers. Versus, you know, the greater population that has to give a shit already has to feel the solidarity isn't going to get it from history books. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. I, I think I just think it's worth underlining. Like, yeah, rent strikes actually look like something that could happen now. Um, any other closing thoughts? Or I, I mean, Jake, that's like uh, just to elaborate. Um, yeah. Do you think the, the essential workers are going to forget that they're the essential workers? Like every so often you get like a social movement that will borrow some like watchwords that have been in hanging in the air. It's possible that essential workers might start thinking of themselves as essential workers in a way that, you know, might've seemed implausible a few months ago. I mean, the whole conversation's changed. I think too, if, if they're, if they did, somehow managed to quickly organize and press their advantage now i think they would also have a lot of support in the broader community you know people are very appreciated i, I have saw something some video i guess in new york where they're basically having like cheering at seven o'clock in the evening they're having like big cheering sections for healthcare workers or whatever just like outside the windows of their apartments and stuff yeah they do i mean it, it's it's a very difficult environment to practice in it there's a lot of things that probably discourage that and management is probably very uptight but there, there is. It's actually a moment where instead, you could have, um, you could really play your. I mean, maybe there's so many people out of out of work. There might be that problem with trying to to leverage it in the sense that you know. But a lot of times, uh, these places were understaffed before they, before this kind of crisis hit. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's it's. It's a situation where if you had cross, so if you had some way of doing supply chain cross industrial uh, organizing, it would help it a lot too. Like if it wasn't just the, the grocery store workers, but people in this in the supply line who were involved as well, um, and you you had a kind of cross section of essential worker, not just one 
portion of it. Um, but I think even on a small scale, if you are like, if you are listening to this and you are part of that essential worker thing, I mean, I, I actually do think in general, like now would be a time to push at your workplace um, because you will have much more community and social support. I mean, like people just, it, and if there was a kind of mass conflict between workers and bosses right now at you know, places like a grocery store, at hospitals even, I think that workers would have uh, the the broader society's underlying sympathy in a way that, you know, the lack of that has killed many a movement. Um, it, it's, you know, certain strikes and, you know, wildcat 70s stuff just didn't have the broad social support to, to make the difference that it wanted to, you know, these, these, so that's one of the things is with the idea of essential proletariat could be mistaken to say, Oh, if we just shut down these exact lines, then everything grinds to a halt, you know, strategically, because you do need that broader social support. But here's a moment, interestingly enough, where other areas of production are mostly not in play. And then that broader social support comes from the fact alone almost that you are the only people still laboring in the mode of production. Like that becomes a appropriate kind of stand in for the, the cross social, you know, worker organizing that, that one would usually have to do to, to, you know, have some, some kind of broad basis, I guess, for class struggle. Um, but yeah, no, now it's, now it's kind of a, a time where I think there's just totally sympathy for it. Yeah. But without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Well, be, people in, in a lot of places might need unions to defend them against their unions, but that, that could be what they start. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how people fight back as long as they do <laughs> at all. <laughs> that could be I mean, the revival of the union movement is that people start fighting, founding unions to protect them from the bureaucratic union that they're forced to be part of. Uh, you know, plausible. I mean, there are actually there are actually things like like things like that within like you know like the Teamsters and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There are kind of yeah. There is like yeah formations like that trying to reform stuff. Well, right where there are unions, most right, of the United right, States right. and probably a lot of these essential workers, aside from healthcare workers, healthcare workers generally, there there are usually some kind of like. There's a lot of unionization in, in the healthcare sector, but you know, a lot of these other kinds of essential workers are exactly the kind of people that, you know, 10 years ago, oh, you can't unionize them. This too rhizomatic, you know, like <laughs> yeah. they're precariat, you know, it's an unrolling uh, nuts and bolts, you know, whatever. Critical theory collaborated with capitalism to make it seem like they couldn't be unionized. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, then, and this reveals that they're totally workers and totally can organize yeah. for their self social self-interests yeah right 